Well, let me do my part to welcome you to this Lord's Day and Christmas Eve service here at Desert Springs Church. My name is Ryan Kelly. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the preaching pastor here at Desert Springs, which means I get to lead us in looking at God's Word a little more intently than we have thus far. So turn with me, if you have a Bible with you, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is the fourth gospel account of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have been in a short Christmas series this Advent season, looking through a bit of John chapter 1, where John shows us at least four aspects of Jesus' coming. Jesus is described at least four different ways or with four different words in John chapter 1. And so, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus as the Word, the Word. Last week, we looked at Jesus as the light. This week, we come to verses 14 to 18, where we see Jesus as the glory of God. And next week, we'll wrap up this short series by hearing the old John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Word, light, glory, and Lamb. And so this week, we behold His glory. What comes to mind when you hear that word glory? We hear it in Christmas carols, of course. We've sung it several times in our service today. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. It's all over the Christmas story as recorded in the Bible. Angels show up to shepherds and they have glory shining round about them. And they sing glory to God in the highest. The word glory isn't used all that much in non-religious circles today. And yet, most of us know exactly what Nacho Libre meant when he asked his potential wrestling partner, Stephen, don't you want a little taste of the glory? Don't you want a little taste of the glory? We know that Nacho is referring to fame and to the spotlight and to, to credit and adulation and people's praise. We are rightly put off when people seek their own glory a little too much and a little too brazenly. We roll our eyes at the professional athlete who might say something like, it's about time for me to get my glory. Well, that sounds rather pathetic. It sounds like you're reaching, clawing for more than is yours, especially when you're likely not the one player on a big team. And, and even the greats, the, the goats, as we call them, greatest of all times, eventually they're not so great, are they? But here's the interesting thing about God. He does seek his own glory. And it's right, because he is the greatest. And it's not selfish, 
but it's loving because it's what we need. He is right and loving to point us to him because he is the greatest. And he is right and loving to call for his praise and for his glory because it's for our good. And Jesus came for this very reason, to show us more of God's glory that we might give more glory to God in his son Jesus. Jesus came to reveal, reveal more of God, more of his ways that we might respond by giving him more credit, more fame, more joy, more praise. Well, I'll explain a little bit more about glory and grace later on. That's enough just for a teaser so far. Let's read our passage, John 1, verses 14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Well, these are power-packed words. It's some thick and lofty theology. Perhaps you were hoping to hear, you know, the Christmas birth story and talk about love or something for a Christmas Eve church service. But here we are in a passage that is very thick, it's very wordy, and every word matters here. There are terms here that many of us might not be familiar with. And so it'll take some slow plotting. It'll take some beholding, meditating, sometimes even considering a word at a time. Because it's some thick stuff, let me suggest four headings to group things together. Four headings of two words each. And here's the first. We have word incarnate in just the first half of verse 14. Word incarnate. Incarnate means in the flesh. And that's what verse 14 is getting at. The word became flesh. The word. If you were with us in our study so far, you know John chapter 1, verse 1 also has that word, word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. That's what John has already said. And that verse makes crystal clear John's claim and Christianity's claim that Jesus, the word, is God. But why is he called the Word? Well, because he's the Word of God. He's the revelation of God. He's the communication of God. He is God's speech embodied. 
As Alex pointed out a couple of weeks ago when he preached John chapter 1, verse 1 and following, he, he pointed out that in the Old Testament days, God's prophets would represent God's words to the people, and they would begin their oracles by saying, this is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to you and says, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And now in Jesus, the word of the Lord is epitomized. It is culminated. It is embodied in Jesus. As we'll see under our next heading, Jesus came to reveal God's glory. And to do that, as he did it, he had to take on flesh. He had to take on flesh. The, the word of God, the revelation of God became flesh, human, and dwelt among us. Which means then that God became human. That touches upon deep Christology, we might say. It is deep, but it is fundamental to Christianity. It is the essence of what we Christians believe and confess. This is like one of those key Jenga pieces. You know that game? You pull some Jenga pieces out and the whole thing crumbles. And certainly the deity and humanity of Jesus is one of those Jenga pieces. Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person. Two natures. He is uniquely the God-man. And this means then that Jesus is not God who put on a human suit. This means then that Jesus didn't lose or lessen his divinity when he became a man. It means then that Jesus is not some sort of messy commingling of two natures or two masks that he wore alternately. Now, Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person, a man who had, a God-man who had two natures. That's the stuff that Cheryl was reading to us about from Philippians 2 earlier. It's the stuff that we confessed from the Nicene Creed earlier. The Nicene Creed, if you don't know, was written in 325 A.D., and we as a church would use something like that, not because we think it's on par with the Bible, but because we think it represents lots of parts of the Bible in succinct, powerful ways. So this is what we said just a bit ago. The only begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, for us and for our salvation, he came down and was incarnate and was made man. That's good. And so is what we sang in Hark the Herald, angels sing. We sang, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That's good theology. Yes, it's mind-boggling. 
Yes, it's mysterious. No, none of us fully get it, but we're kind of marking off. It has to be this, and it can't be that. And where we reach the limits of our reason, where doctrine is mysterious, it should lead us all the more to to have awe and wonder and praise. Let, Let me quote some old dead guys who were really good at letting the mystery of the incarnation just lead them to praise. Charles Spurgeon said in the 19th century of Jesus, he said, infinite and yet an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty yet dependent on his mother for food, supporting the universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. Thomas Watson, a Puritan in the 17th century, put it like this. That man should be made in God's image is a wonder, but that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder. That the ancient of days would be born, that he who thunders in the heavens would cry in the cradle. Behold, behold. The word became flesh, and John adds this, and dwelt among us. And literally, in the Greek, that can be translated, he tabernacled among us. He tabernacled. That word tabernacled, it has rich historical significance in the Bible. In the Old Testament, God traveled with his sojourning people in the wilderness in a tent, In the midst of the people, in the midst of all their tents, there every night they set up God's tent. He was with his people. He was in the midst of his people. Wherever they were, he was there. And John is deliberately picking up that important language of old when he says that Jesus tabernacled among us. John could have just said that he walked among us. He ate with us. Those things were true. He could have said Jesus lived and moved among us. But instead he picked up that special Old Testament language so that we would understand that Jesus is the fuller realization of this idea of God dwelling among sinners. By sacrifice, Jesus is the realization, the fulfillment of that old concept of God being with his people. Our God came to us. Aren't you thankful that we have a God, not aloof, not distant, not disinterested, but a God who is intent and goes to great lengths to be with us? To dwell with us. Well, that's the first phrase, word incarnate. Then we come to these two words, glory divine. Glory divine. The rest of verse 14 says, and we have seen his glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we come back to that word, glory. What is glory? I defined it earlier as fame, attention, adulation, applause, praise. But let me add to that definition now. Because in the Bible, God gets glory because he shows his glory. It's kind of used both ways. In the Bible, God's glory is his radiance, his beauty, his splendor, his acts, his power, his bigness. It's his attributes. It's him showing himself. God's glory is what is said to be on display throughout the book of Exodus, where God did all these marvelous things. They're called signs and wonders in that book. God showed his glory in those various ways. And John picks up that old language and says that in this Jesus, the word, we have seen God's glory, his radiance, his beauty, his worth, his ways, his bigness. So Jesus is not only divine. He's not only God in the flesh. He not only tabernacled among us, but he is the embodiment of the revelation of the glory of God. In fact, the glory of God is his glory. Do you see that little word, his? His glory. He has glory, divine glory. He's not showing a little bit of God's glory. He is God's glory. As for who saw this glory, John says, we have seen his glory. I think the we there are any eyewitnesses that observed what Jesus taught, what Jesus did, how he acted, like John did, other apostles did, so many others did. Hundreds of people witnessed these displays of God's glory in Jesus. But what precisely did they see when they saw his glory? Medieval artists would paint Jesus with um, a bit of a glowing head, right? It lets you know that's the Jesus guy in the painting. Well, that wasn't really uh, an actual depiction of Jesus. Jesus didn't have a, a glowing halo around his head. And as that old Christmas hymn says... Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh. His glory wasn't all the glory that could be seen. In fact, to many who saw Jesus act and heard him teach, they didn't see any glory. Many people saw Jesus do miracles and even wouldn't deny that they saw a miracle and yet wouldn't believe in him, wouldn't believe he was sent from God, let alone believe that he was God. They opposed him. That's very possible. It's very common. But 
There are those in the story of the gospel accounts who encounter him. They they get him. They behold him. They apprehend him. They, They knew that this was more than just a mere man. They beheld glory in the miracles, in the teaching, in the compassion that he showed to the weak and the weary. John saw these things. I love how John later writes, he's got this little letter at the end of our Bibles, we call it First John. It's the same guy who wrote the gospel according to John. And he begins that little letter like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, in which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, that's Jesus, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, which we have seen and heard, and now we proclaim also to you. And in that little bit of the introduction of 1 John, we get some understanding how we today would behold the glory of God in Jesus. I mean, after all, Jesus isn't walking the planet in a certain geopolitical spot somewhere on the map these days, and you should probably get there and go listen to him, see him, see if you can get a healing and learn from him. No, that's not where we go to behold his glory today. But those who at first did see did experience, they they wrote it down. As John says here in 1 John, he proclaimed what he heard and saw. He and his colleagues testify to all that they heard and saw and observed, all that Jesus said. And so, where do we today go to behold God's glory in Christ? Well, we go to the Bible It's what we're trying to do right now. I'm trying my best to show you God's glory in Jesus from John's record of it. From a guy who actually saw it and was there. And so if you're not a Christian, I point you to the Bible. Not to me, not to good advice, not to good sayings, but to the Bible. To this historical record of Jesus' life and death, and resurrection. Go to the Bible. Read it for yourself if you never have. If you don't know where to read, uh, just keep reading in John. That's where we are this morning. Just keep reading. Here's the story of Jesus for you. And if you are a Christian, don't forget that God continues to reveal more of his glory in the word, the Bible, as we go to it and look upon it and gaze in it and and study it as we behold it. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as we behold him, we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed to be more like Jesus the more we behold his glory. And I think what Paul meant is behold his glory in the word, the Bible. So go and gaze and look and study. 
Ask questions and seek out answers. There's this author, G.K. Beale, a scholar who he suggests this principle that we become like what we behold. You stare at stuff long enough and you become like it. The principle actually goes back to olden days where people who worshipped idols became like them. Idols don't do anything. They're fake gods. They don't talk. They don't move. And people who worship them become like them. They become empty, useless, fake, weird. But when we behold God, when we behold Jesus, we become more like him. Keep beholding. A third thing we see back in John chapter 1 is overflowing grace. Word incarnate, glory divine, and now overflowing grace. And we get this from verses 16 and 17, but also from a little bit that's in verse 14. Let, Let me point that out. Verse 14 said, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's another important connection with the book of Exodus, grace and truth. In Exodus 33, Moses boldly asks God to show him his glory. God says, no man can see my glory and live. But I'll tell you what I'll do, Moses. I will tuck you in the cleft of this rock. I will shield you with my hand, and then I will pass by, and as the the tail end of the backside of my glory is just about gone, I'll remove my hand so you can see a bit of the tail end of my glory. That's what God does. And as he passes by, he says something to Moses. He says his name, his, his full name, Did you know God has a full name? It's much bigger than even Londoners. You know, King Charles probably has four or five middle names. Well, God's name, according to himself in Exodus 34, is this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Two words which could be translated grace and truth. John picks up that language and applies them to Jesus. Jesus is abounding in grace and truth, full of grace and truth, or as he says in verses 16 and 17, it is from his fullness that we have received grace upon grace, overflowing grace. And then he says, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament law had a a kind of grace to it, right? It had some good. It pointed out sin, and it pointed us to a Savior. That's good. The giving of the law certainly had glory. You can read about that glory in Exodus 20. By the way, our Sandia Peak looked almost Sinai Attic this morning. It was glowing up there in 
and thick clouds. But Jesus is the embodiment. He's not Sinai all over again. He's not a magic trick on a mountain. He's the embodiment and fulfillment of the glory of God. He is the fullness of grace and truth. Aren't you thankful for glory that is full of grace and truth? Think about that. What's the alternative? Well, what if God came and showed his glory in wrath, showed his glory in judgment, showed his glory in rebuke? And there is a time coming when that will happen. But in Jesus' first coming, that's not what we got. Instead, he showed us sinners his glory in the fullness of grace and truth. It's marvelous. In fact, God's glory, full of grace and truth, is shown to us supremely in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's seen in his miracles, yes. Uh, John chapter 2, if you read on there, Jesus' first miracle, it's said to be one of glory. He's letting his glory loose, as it were. But this is interesting. You read on in John, and you get to John chapter 12, and that, John chapter 12, marks the last week before the cross. The end is coming. And how does Jesus talk when it's the last week before his crucifixion? John 12, verse 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is how he'll be glorified in his death and resurrection and victory. Just a few verses later in John 12, Jesus goes on to say that his soul is troubled. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's the hour of the cross. No, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name in the cross. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The glory of God, full of grace and truth, shines the brightest on that dark day when the sun was eclipsed and the Son of God died. Do you see that? As we'll see next week, chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this is no small part of why Jesus had to take on flesh. He had to become man. He had to become one of us to represent us. To be a substitute for us. To take on our just punishment of death and hell. He went to the cross willingly and bore the wrath of God that we might go free if we only believe. 
do you believe? Have you come to believe that Jesus' death was God's glory being revealed to sinful humanity? Have you come to believe that Jesus is the answer? This is why John wrote this book we call John, that you would believe. He says at the end of the book, chapter 20, these things were written down so that you would believe and that believing you would have eternal life. Perhaps if you're coming to believe that today, maybe you just start to talk to God about it. Just say, Lord, I believe. And I'm not even sure what I got wrong. I believe. Pray as one man prayed. I believe. Help my unbelief. Pray that today. And then we come lastly to these two words. Hidden, revealed. The hidden is revealed in Jesus, according to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. With likely another allusion back to the book of Exodus, John affirms what God said back there to Moses. No man can see God in all his glory. Not fully. Not Moses, not you, not me, not yet. But Jesus, who is God and the only Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And literally, in the Greek here, it's he has exegeted him which if you're not a Christian, that means nothing to you. But if you're in some parts of Christianity, some camps, you'll know that we talk about exegesis when we're talking Bible study or what a pastor should be doing when he's preaching. He should exegete the text, which means to bring out what is there. Jesus is the exegete of God. He exposes, reveals what's there to us. He gives us the meaning. He's the answer. He's the key. We cannot know God apart from Jesus. As Jesus will say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. The same John who wrote the gospel account and wrote 1 John also wrote the last book in our Bibles, which we call Revelation. And the Jesus revealed there is no little baby in the manger. Jesus said to John, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and death. That's the one we celebrate at Christmas. That one taking on flesh for us. This story is far more than just a, 
a curious baby or a miraculous birth. It is the almighty God coming to earth for us and for our salvation. So behold, behold him. Behold his glory. Gaze upon the truth of God's word and don't give up. Keep looking, keep growing. Behold his glory and give him glory. Give him glory. The one who shows us God's glory is the one to whom we should give all our praise and glory and thanks. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wisdom and glory and blessing forever and ever. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray you would reveal more of yourself to us today and in the days ahead and in this next year. Lord, may we behold and may we give you glory for your glorious plan and for this wonderful book, the Bible, and for the glorious God who authors it and stands behind it and speaks to us even this day. May we behold glory in Jesus that is unique, uniquely full of grace and truth. May we never tire of it. Help us even now to sing of it with joy and faith and thankfulness to you. In Christ's name, amen.